This is Dana McClendon, and this is Ready for Trial. My guest today is Joe Baugh. Joe has been around the, uh, the bar in Williamson County for over 40 years. One of the reasons I started this podcast was in part to create an oral history of the people that are practicing law and sitting on the bench in and around Tennessee and elsewhere. Um, you know, I wish I'd have done this a long time ago. If I had, I would have recordings of some of my mentors to include Bill Leach and Ernie Williams, just to name a couple. I miss those guys. I wish they were still around, and I wish I had something uh, that I had recorded with them back then. So I'm not going to make that mistake again. Um, in any event, ladies and gentlemen, this is the interview that I did with Joe Baugh. I hope you enjoy. All right. My guest today is Joe Baugh. Uh, Joe is... Um, uh, well, I divide the world into the lawyers that were here when I got here and the lawyers that have come since. And Joe is one of the lawyers that was here when I got here, um, a native of Franklin. And uh, how long have you been practicing, Joe? Let's see. I started, I passed the bar the same day that Judge Martin and Ed Silva did, Don, and Don Harris. So um, it's been about 47 years now. All right. So you've been around. <laughs> yeah, almost 50 years. Wow. Okay, so when I think 30 years is a long time, um, not, not, not quite as long. Um, well, thanks for coming. Um, you're welcome. Uh, you're a native of Williamson County? Right. Grew up here. What was it like growing up in Williamson County before, all, before what, what it became today? Before the modernization? Yeah. Well, it was... Uh, I used to, I uh, grew up out on Liberty Pike, and I used to uh, ride my bicycle into town uh, on Liberty Pike, and it was a gravel road then. <laughs> uh, and the factory was a factory? Factory indeed was a factory. It was, uh, I think it was Magic Chef Stove then, then became Jameson, and, and, uh, the phosphate trucks used to run out there all the time because they dug phosphate out there. So the road was really pretty good. Had to be for the trucks, I guess. It, well, the trucks were so heavy. They just it smashed just it. pounded <laughs> okay. down almost to asphalt. So like. Liberty Pike's a gravel road, <coughs> and uh, the factory is actually a factory. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. Um, we went to elementary school down here at Five Points. That school that and, burned. Uh-huh. It burned. When did it I burn? I remember when it burned. That was when, uh, I guess I was uh, youngish in, before I was a teenager maybe, I can't remember. I think lightning struck it. I, I remember when the high school on Columbia Avenue, which became the Boys and Girls Club, burned. And I remember when Lily Mills, which is down uh, across the block here from where we are, I remember when it burned. You remember all the monumental fires <laughs> in your town. It's weird and, how that works, I guess. Mm -hmm. What the building that we're in now, which is the first Tennessee bank building now on the square, right? Was it a bank building, or did it even exist? Uh, it was. Uh, I was trying to think of what it was. No, the bank, the Harpeth Bank, which the first Tennessee became now First Horizon, was down on the corner of Fourth and Main. And this was furniture stores, and there was a factory here that made salad dressing, and there was a uh, Billy Adair, whose widow B.G. Adair lives in Franklin. His father had a uh, furniture store here, 
And uh, then right behind us, they had Tom Cotton's show barn, and they would sell mules and cattle and stuff. So people were selling livestock. Were people still selling livestock over here behind City Hall? Yeah, oh yeah. It was actually in City Hall. It was where City Hall is now. Was a show barn. Yeah, the show barn. It was uh, that street that comes out. So there. the building that we call City Hall now was actually what's nineteen seventies. A, a strip became a oh, indoor yeah, mall. Sixties and yeah, it was uh, people. Uh, people, Dana used to come in to town on Saturday, and Saturday afternoon they would come in, and a certain sec- segment of them would be in the numerous beer joints here. <laughs> And because this, at the time, Franklin was not at all like what it is today. No, it was more like, uh, oh. It was a little rougher. Yeah, it was a little rougher. People, uh, one time I was, uh, the, the Review Appeal used to shut off that section of Main Street where the Franklin Theater is, and they would post the election results on a sheet across the street. Uh, and as the boxes came in, they would change it all by hand and project it. And I remember somebody was drunk, and one of the highway patrolmen hit him with a billy club and just laid him over the front of a car, and the blood was coming out. That was shocking to me as a young fellow. (laughs) So, um, of course, all the practice of law was at the old courthouse. Right. All the law was at the old courthouse. As a matter of fact, all the county businesses were there. So there was no, because it was no, still a hospital. Registers, no, registers office. Uh, uh, well, the, the, what, we, what we call the old county hospital had not yet become right. the administrative complex. Lawsuit. Okay, maybe we'll cover that. So, because, mm-hmm. um, so, did, where'd you go to college? Vanderbilt. Law school? Uh, Mercer in Georgia, okay. Macon, Georgia, and then you come home, right? And what what drew you what drew, what what sent you to law school, and what drew you back home to practice? Well, I was talking to people, and they said uh, it's always good to practice uh, where you know somebody. And I knew people. My um, we lived out on my grandparents live on what we call Nashville Pike, and then my father was a county commissioner here. So I came back and practiced with Mabry Covington and Carter Conway when I first came back, and I did my I mainly did titles and appointed criminal cases. Uh, where there probably weren't did, twelve lawyers here then. Actually, there were quite a few. I'd say about twenty, twenty-five. Okay. Tom Fox and Tyler Berry and all his bunch, and C.D. Berry and Cletus McWilliams. Dave Alexander always was bringing in new people. <laughs> Jim Peterson. I got my share of Dave Alexander stories from Ernie Williams. Right. They used to go out to the Shoney's to eat. That was Mr. Alexander's place. Right. I expect that a lot of them may be true. <laughs> Some of them anyway, maybe. So you come back. What year is it you what year is it you come back and set up practicing? Nineteen seventy four. I came out of law school. Well, I'd been to Vietnam and um I took law boards in Da Nang. And you took I, the bar exam in Da Nang? I took the bar exam. No, I took the uh, LSAT in Da Nang. Oh, okay. I took the bar exam in Nashville. Okay. So I came back and, and uh, 
Mercer wouldn't have me as a, where I graduated ultimately. But I went to, I had a friend who uh, knew the dean at the University of Tulsa, and so I started at Tulsa. And I was used to being in bunkers, so I went to the law library and just read all the stuff. Then I made good enough grades to move closer to home, and that's when I transferred to Mercer and went down there and graduated in the top 20% in a class that I was refused admittance to. <laughs> well, that must have been some vindication. Mm -hmm. It was. It was a great school. Very, it was a small school, very nice. And then coming back here, uh, I knew a lot of people, but I had never been in a courtroom here till I came to uh, uh, interview with Carter Conway, and I saw Judge Henderson, John Henderson's father, trying a case. And uh, ultimately, I worked on that case on appeal and uh, started out and really learned a lot by getting appointed cases and and trying jury trials, and, and so I started uh, losing cases as a, an appointed <laughs> attorney, and then got to know what would win a case and what would lose a case and what kind of case you had by doing that. And then uh, a job came up with Elmer Davies as an assistant DA, and I started that in 76. So just in nine minutes... You have just run through the pantheon of, of the uh, the Williamson County Bar of old. Right. Not that yeah, you're name not, dropping. Not, not only that, but uh, the Nashville lawyers ha have always had a uh, a, a, a very strong presence here in Williamson County. Yeah. A lot of them lived out here. You go to. Uh, you go to Murfreesboro, Gallatin, they always, their judges come from there, their their DAs come from there. Williamson County, all our judges come from Nashville. They practice <laughs> in Nashville. A lot of a lot them of did. The, that's for, a lot that's of the lawyers came from, came from Nashville. So you get that, you get that a lot that you don't, Columbia, you don't see that kind of uh, stuff. But Williamson County's affluent enough that they draw in the big divorce lawyers, the big, uh, the big corporate lawyers. So it's been that way all, the whole time. It it's been that way quite a bit of the time. So you um, you start with Carter Conway, and then Elmer Davies, Lee Davies' dad, right, uh, is the DA. Right. He becomes a judge later. Yes, that was a, there was a notorious feud between him. And the judge that was elected in 74, Judge Larkin, who's now, well, both of them are dead now. And they had just a gigantic feud because uh, both of them were a little unhinged. <laughs> and and uh, they they got to feuding and uh, Elmer Davies, just, I, it, it was understood between himself and myself that I was going to run for DA, and then and then about six months before the election in 1982, he decided he was going to stay on as DA, and then Judge Larkin uh, sentenced me to jail for not uh, uh, telling him uh, what had happened in our office. And wait, 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 wait! 
I can't let you just skip over that. So we're in 1982. Right. You've made... You've, Actually, this is the end of 81. All right. So you've made the decision. You're going to run for DA. Right. With the understanding that your boss at the time, Elmer Davies, was going to... Was not going to run again. Right. Was he going to run for something else or did he... He didn't he just, say... But he just he, said, I'm not going to run again. Yeah. So... But then he decides maybe he will. Right. And Judge no, Larkin... No, he was going to run for judge. Oh, okay. Because he, he to... and Judge Larkin had had such a feud, they uh, they were constantly battling back and forth about... So the elected judge... How many judges were sitting on the bench here then? Two. So Larkin is one. Who's the other? Judge Bell was one and Larkin Henry Denmark Bell. And then... Uh, then uh, Elmer decided he would not go into Larkin's court. Well, that, He's the left, DA. <laughs> that left me to go into the court and suffer the slings and arrows. And a bunch of lawyers took advantage of that because Larkin was not kindly disposed to the... Your whole office? Yeah. Right. So Judge Bell, who was on the bench when I got here... He's on the bench. Larkin's on the bench. Elmer Davies decides he's going to be judge and be rid of be rid of this Judge Larkin once and for all. Right. Uh, I know from history that Davies wins by, be, by just a fraction, like small amount. Right. Okay. Less less than uh, Russ Heldman beat me by. <laughs> if you Russ want Hellman to, we'll cover be, that. Beat me by seventy six votes, and I think that Elmer beat Terry Larkin by two hundred. So um, now at the time in this election in 82, Two. is this a predominantly Democratic county, predominantly Republican county? or, or? No, well, when they first came in in 74, there was, uh, uh, it was about the establishment was all Democrat. Right. Charlie Fox, Joe Herbert. Uh, Cletus McWilliams, they, Dave Alexander, they were all titular Democrats, but they were, they were the conservative Democrats, the kind that are the conservative Republicans today. Okay. And then, uh, in, in actually when I ran in 82 was the first time they had a primary, uh, for that case in the, DA's office. So you had to run against someone in the primary? I, I did not run in the primary. Ernie Williams and John Rogers ran in the Republican primary. John Rogers won, and then I ran against John Rogers. Now, Ernie goes on to become U.S. attorney. Right. What happened to John Rogers? He uh, practices in Nashville, and he's passed away now. Okay. So there's a Davies wins the bench. Right. You become the DA in 82. True. Okay. Ernie Williams uh, runs, doesn't win, and is named U.S. Attorney in mid-80s? Yeah. Okay. Uh, maybe the late 80s. Late 80s. Mm -hmm. All right. And then you are the district attorney for 20... Yeah, two terms. Six, well, I was an assistant for six years and then DA for 16 years. Okay. And... Um, I know from being here that you hired a lot of the 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 people who are now preeminent criminal defense lawyers. Um, yes, that, uh, here's my thought thought on that. The DA's office in most places is just a state job, but in my office we had the best people, we had the best resources. We did the best, uh, you found the best young people, Derek Smith, Mark Poirier, 
uh, Robert Hassel. Uh, Robert Hassel. Those people that have gone on Sharon. to become Sharon uh, Guffey. Those people that become the uh, next generation of leaders worked there, worked hard. We had good cohesion. And uh, it wasn't just another state job. We were a law firm and we we worked well. Don Swindeman down in Hohenwald. Uh, uh, Doug Bates down in... Now, was the district the same then? So, Williamson County connected to Hickman, Lewis, and Perry? Right. Always, it was the okay. 17th district. Then it became the 21st when they reorganized. So, what was the best part about being the, the district attorney? What did you like about that? Well, you got to help a lot of people, and you got to, you got to show pride in the office that we were not afraid. We worked with some good law enforcement people. We had good relations with the AG's office, Sheriff Fleming Williams, who was a, a legend really here, Sheriff Frank Atkinson, Sheriff Mitchell Brady in Hickman County, um, some uh, General Sessions judges that were legendary. Uh, one was uh, ran a construction company and had a noose hanging in his office. <laughs> This is before Sessions judges had to also be lawyers. Right. They just he had to was, win the race. He was not a lawyer. He had, he did what, his name was Pee Wee Parnell, and he was a, he dispensed cornfield justice. <laughs> and I'm going to have to have you explain that. Yeah. Well, that's just the, the law of the cornfield. The, the common sense, uh, throw away them law books kind of justice. Just tell me the story and I'll tell you what we're going to do about it. Right. Okay. But he, he became sophisticated because he, you know, we had to... Teach him a little bit. Yeah, he had to know something about evidence and stuff. But it was pretty much a... Uh, it kind of reminded me if you've seen the trial and true grit with Jeff Bridges. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, where he plays Rooster Cogburn. Right. Uh, it was kind of like those kind of cases. Um, it was uh, it was a sort of a freewheeling uh, kind of justice. But but he did handle some. We had a case where a boy went sort of off his rocker and picked up a couple of guns from his father, who was a prison guard in Kentucky, came down to Perry County and murdered a woman while she was doing crafts in her garage and drove across the Tennessee River and told the police over in Parsons that he'd killed a woman across the river. I mean, the stuff you think, you, you when I describe it, it sounds like something out of the Wild West. Yeah. Well, the, the we won't call them the lower counties anymore, but that's always been kind of the Wild West of, mm -hmm. of this Lewis district. Lewis and Perry, no. Yeah, that's a bad thing. I think Larry Jorlson started calling them the lower counties, but they <laughs> actually are west of us more, right. more than more than down south of us. But they were, but Williamson County was no different. We had moonshiners. We had pool halls. Bootleggers. We had pool halls. We had beer joints. We had fights and beer joints. We had people shooting each other on Saturday night and cutting each other. If you look at the ordinances of the city of Franklin, which I, of course I have, from time to time you, you flip through it and you go, why was this ever made a law, <laughs> right? And, well, you just have to go back to like the 70s to realize why it became a law 
about what hours pool halls could keep. Right. It seems irrelevant today, but once upon a time, it needed to be the law. Well, the pool hall was a kind of a place in Franklin when I grew up that your mother would tell you to stay out of it. Um, the only pool hall that I could go in was the basement of St. Paul's Episcopal Church <laughs> that had a pool table. and A respectable pool table. It was respectable. Uh, and they had combo parties in the back of the church. Uh, some, so that was... The, but the other pool halls were you could buy some whiskey if you wanted to or get somebody to go get it and... There was gambling on all the games and uh, probably some pretty good snacks there at the pool halls. But there were quite a few of them. There were three or four of them. And then there were... Right here on Main Street. Yeah. And these were the only liquor stores in the district up here. And, of course, they bootlegged because Knox County was dry. And they would use the stores here to fill up tractor trailers and take it over to Knoxville (laughs) So sometime, I guess, during your second term as district attorney, you decided maybe you'd wanted to be a judge? Yes. I decided that that the DA's job had gotten a little stale and that, uh, you know, uh, there's a certain appeal to term limits. And um, I decided I'd run for judge in uh, 1998. And that ended up being you and Russ Heldman and Keith, Senator Jordan, Jordan, Keith Jordan. Mm-hmm. Three-way race. Comes, <coughs> out, comes out close. Yeah, really close. Yeah. Don't mind telling you I voted for you. Thank you. I Lewis did. County, True story. Uh, uh, Lewis County made the difference, and I think that was fixed, as is often <laughs> the case in Lewis County. But that's that's politics. That's, that's a reason you've got uh, President Trump making uh, deals and doing things and Nancy Pelosi doing other stuff. Yeah. You've got, you got that. That's all politics. So uh, did you lose your taste for politics at that point? Well, no, I applied for judge later on, but uh, uh, but it didn't make it out. Uh, I, 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 I flatter myself by saying that People just thought I'd be too formidable a candidate to, to run. But that's, what, uh, was that one of the appointments that for a vacancy? Yeah, that was Deanna's uh, appointment. Oh, okay. Johnson. All right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and in the meantime, so since, I guess, 98, you've been in private practice. Right. And still doing criminal defense. Right. Yeah, do a lot of criminal defense. I do, everybody's afraid to go into federal court. So I decided that I would go do some federal work. And I got on with the Federal Public Defenders Panel, and I represented people that had been charged in federal court. And you have to learn a whole different skill set. They're different. The cases that you normally just cite off the top of your head are no good in federal court, so you have to do a lot of work. And then you to visit your inmates. They could be anywhere. Oh, they're in Kentucky. Uh, Bowling Green. Bowling Green a lot in uh, uh, Mayfield, Kentucky up there. Uh, Wherever the contract takes them. Mm-hmm. That's right. It's a pain in the neck. Right. And federal judges just put down orders and say, you be here then. 
And there's no, there's no conflicts you have to, but in a way that's good because you know exactly when to be there. You know your case is going to be heard. Um, there's none of this docket juggling. No, there's not much docket juggling with them. So um, what was the shift from prosecuting cases for 16 years to defending cases? How's that? What was that mind, mindset like? Yeah, I don't. I don't uh, I've heard lawyers say, Ron Davis said for one, other people said, maybe John Henderson said, he couldn't represent the state or he couldn't represent the defendant. Or that. that was not me. If I couldn't try both sides of a case, I could go into any case, try both sides of it. You don't know what, you don't know really how the case is going to be tried. Of course, you don't know what their uh, testimony is going to be. And <laughs> let me tell you something. If you think you know what witnesses' testimony is going to be, you're sadly mistaken. You many <laughs> times find when they testify. It's a, I, tell, I tell clients all the time, it's a long walk to the witness stand. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people get religion on the way. Well, you know? I, you know, I would ask people, why did you say that? You told me before, and they'd say stuff like, well, I wasn't under oath then. Or, <laughs> I didn't know you meant this. Yeah. Well, of course I meant this. Yeah, <laughs> what kind yeah. of silly stuff is yeah, that? Yeah, that happens a lot of times. And then there are little small things that juries pick up on. It's, isn't it amazing? It what is. What juries amazing. seize upon. You know, the lawyers, we, we prepare a case and we think, okay, these are the facts that matter. There's a ton of facts, but these are the facts I really got to get in front of the jury. And the other side's going to try to get these facts in, and maybe I can raise this evidentiary objection, whatever. So we focus on this universe of facts that, as lawyers, we've analyzed and think, these are the facts that the jury has to figure out who to believe or what to think. And then you try the case, and then the jury comes back with a question, and you're like, what? They want to see the first five minutes of the video. Nothing happens in the first. There's no point. What are they looking at in the first five minutes of this video? There's nothing there. Like the lawyers all thought, the part of the video that matters is from minute 28 to 40. That's what the, they want to see the first five minutes. You're like, what are you doing? Well, they, there, one time we had a case in Perry County. And of course, I'm in, I do all the questioning when I was DA in the grand juries. And then when they get ready to vote, I go outside. Well, the grand jury room in Perry County was only uh, separated from outside the grand jury by plasterboard that was no thicker than this <laughs> iPad you have there. And and uh, we had a taking ginseng out of season case. <laughs> Which turns out to be a crime. Yeah, that's a crime, take ginseng out of season. And so the guy from the uh, Department of Agriculture was down and he testified and I asked the grand juries after his letter, I said, y'all know this guy? Oh, no. No, no, I never heard of him know anything like it. So I go out, and they're voting on it, and I get out right outside the door, and they said, oh, they got Bud again. <laughs> they all knew it. <laughs> they had the defendant. They all knew the defendant. They all knew that he took ginseng out of season. and they <laughs> Did they issue a true bill? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, they, down there, and it used to be in Williamson County, everybody knew the facts. 
before then, it got to the courthouse. Yeah, but then the, the judge would, was the last one to hear them. And they would tell you under oath that they never, don't know anything about the I case. I don't know a thing about and it. And they knew all about it. But that's good because you get the jury in the sense of the original juries where the jury was composed of people that knew all the facts. Right. Well, at least knew the people. Mm-hmm. Like, it wasn't hard to convince them that so-and-so had been a, a, a bastard again. He'd mm-hmm. hit his wife again or whatever. We know he did that. Right. Yeah, there's something to be said for that, maybe. This idea that you get this pristine, pure, virginal jury of people that know nothing and will follow the law and ascertain the facts, that's the Easter Bunny. Well, uh, Judge Russell, who was on the Court of Criminal Appeals for years, said that, in an opinion that only those people with infrequent dealings with juries can say with any certainty what they'll do. Right. There's no telling. You, you, can, you can guess all you want to. And I've tried hundreds of jury trials, hundreds of them. And uh, it's always, I was always nervous before the case started, and then you just settle down into a... Um, learned behavior and you put the facts out there and you don't know what they're going to come up with. Some of of them are real injustices in in my mind and some of them are uh, insightful beyond any great jurist in the history of the country. I keep threatening to tell the the story of my first jury trial and someday I'll do that. Um, Terrible injustice. But one uh, one that I had that was insightful, I had a guy down in Columbia um, he's probably mentally ill. He, he, he had something wrong with him. And he was accused of phoning in a bomb threat to the elementary school where his son uh, went to school. And apparently he'd had some clashes with the administration there. And he felt like they were treating his son unfairly or whatever. And um, he had been in the military. So people had this idea that he knew some secret sauce to make a bomb or whatever. So he was alleged to have phoned in a bomb threat. We tried this case and it didn't. It, it it really was a it really was a case where if you if you were just listening to the story you'd be like, we don't. This man doesn't need to be put in prison. He probably needs to be helped, um, and he, you know, and whatever. So I got the judge somehow. I got the judge to include as a lesser included the offense of telephone harassment, <laughs> and the jury convicted him of telephone harassment, much to my amazement. Um, and when we finished, I was ecstatic because he'd been charged with a felony and he ended up being convicted only of a telephone harassment. Um, and when we finished, the, the judge said, thank you to the jurors. And then he said to him, is there any, do you have any questions or is there anything you'd like to say? And they kind of mumbled among themselves. And then the foreperson said, well, your honor, we were talking about it and we do think he needs some kind of help or treatment or something. <laughs> and I was sitting there like, what are we doing here? I was blown away. But I mean, they were right. But like, I was taken off guard by the idea that the judge would sort of say, thank you for rendering this verdict. I have some open-ended questions for you all, but that's what happened. So, Well, when juries sentenced people, it used to be they didn't convict them of the offense they actually picked set the, sentence. the sentences. Yeah, they just picked the sentence and backed into the And offense. when juries did that, they would always, or many times, came back and would ask about, 
well, is he going to be able to be, how much time will he serve? Right. And uh, the judge would have to say, well, you, you don't control that. You just set the time. And then, and then they'd come back and say, well, what about parole? Right. Is he going to get they wanted, they wanted to pick how long he'd be in jail. Well, they, they, wanted to, uh, they wanted to fashion a sentence where, they, where that, what they wanted was what the, he was going to get. Yeah, they didn't and, want any doubt that, about that's it. That's because judges kowtow to juries so much. It gives them this, uh, it gives them this uh, magnifies sense of their power. And if they get too much of a sense of their power, they they can mess up the case by putting a bunch of error in. And yeah, the, um, our, the the questions that were posed by the jury in the first jury trial I was ever involved in were amazing. Um, they clearly wanted to control specifically the outcome. Um, there well, was they a, have they have that right to control it, but you've got certain rules, and you have to. To have a fair trial, you have to abide by the rules. And then once you get in there and the judge tells you, well, you're all powerful in this, you think, well, the the halter's out, uh, off. I can go anywhere I want to. Yeah. Yes. As I think about it, you're right. The questions that I've had a jury ask in, in criminal cases almost always had to do with they wanted to measure exactly the punishment so that it wasn't too little or too much. And they just didn't right. know how to get there. <clears throat> and that's why it's important that the juries know how much time the person's going to get. Which they don't now. Um, they don't, and that's a, that's a real mistake. I agree. I think, um, the, for those of you listening that, that don't know how this works, in Tennessee anyway, all the jury does is, is decide whether or not a person is guilty of one or the other charges or not, period. At the end of that, the judge then, you know, decides what the sentence is within a specified range for that offense. Um, so the juries don't know that if they convict of the second count that the defendant might get 15 years in prison or yeah, might the, get probation or the whatever. The jury doesn't know that uh, there's a vast difference between second-degree murder and voluntary murder. Right, so... I did play a little bit of a game with that bomb threat case. The judge was willing to instruct on lesser included. And then he asked me if I would waive the jury setting the fine. And I said, no. I insist that the jury set the fine. Because the fine, the difference in the fine between the felony and the misdemeanor was enough of a clue. It was the only clue I could give them that one was worse than the other. And so... <laughs> I insisted that the jury set the fine. So I like to think that that little clever gamesmanship... That's pretty, pretty shrewd. So I'd like to think that that might be how they arrived at the at what they got. But um, Well, so practicing since 74, it, mostly here in Franklin, um, what are the biggest differences that you see between the practice of law in 1974 and the practice of law in 2020? Well... Uh, in 1974, the new rules of criminal procedure had just come in, and uh, they uh, brought in some uh, 
Discovery, where you could see lab reports. They brought in uh, evidence where you could get uh, exculpatory evidence and some cases police reports. And uh, then now we have uh, local rules. Like this is rules put down by our circuit judges, our jury trial judges that are uh, 46 pages. <laughs> they're they're, they're uh, not only the rules of criminal procedure and the... Now you got uh, local uh, rules that are different from county to county. Uh, you got, yes. But they, they, the local rules are different and they're different from judge to judge. Yeah, there's the... But so, they're not supposed to be. Right, so practice tip for young lawyers, um, uh, read the local rules. A lot. <laughs> uh, never get never get whacked by the local rules, because it's been my experience that the judges who wrote them are particularly fond of using them, um, more so even than the rules that you know are statewide. Well, the thing about local rules is you're supposed to publish them, and everybody all over the state can get them. But when you practice in different jurisdictions, there are Unwritten rules. That's the other thing that everybody thing. knows, except but, the guy who didn't know. <laughs> but the, but and that sometimes have been made up. So the big difference was in 1974 you had less rulemaking, and now we're virtually choked off by rulemaking until the pandemic. And then uh, everybody is afraid to make rules because. They really make a difference. They'll make a big difference. Yeah, that's that. The, the 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 practice of law has changed more in the past 120 days than it had in the prior 12 years. Probably. It makes a big difference, and things that we accept, like the other day, the Court of Criminal Appeals ruled that confrontation under the Constitution requires that you bring the witnesses into the court so everybody can see them. And you can face-to-face -face talk to them. Well, that's shocking because it's expensive and in some instances dangerous to bring somebody on an airplane from another state to come in and testify and put them in a motel uh, where they're in contact with everybody in the world, truck drivers, whatever. And so we have these these... Uh, commandments under our Constitution, and uh, and there the, you have to accept common sense. Like the other day, uh, Justice Gorsuch said, "It's crazy in Nevada that the judge can enjoin churches from having ceremonies, but that the uh, casinos can run full blast. <laughs> yeah. uh, and and he was saying that that's just not right. And it isn't just not right. There is no First Amendment right to gamble. But there is a First Amendment right to freedom of speech. There is no... And you can tell how uncommon some people are by the rules that they apply in light of this 
COVID-19 problem, that there are some people that just love bossing other people around, <laughs> and then there are some people that don't like government bossing other people around. Yeah, so um, I was going to ask you, how, uh, how much of this whole virtual lawyering thing have you gotten up to speed on or, or accepted or rejected? And what do you think it means going forward? How much of this do you think is going to stick around for us? Well, I think some of it is. I think that I've, I've learned to use Zoom. I've learned to use uh, Westlaw better. I've learned to use uh, e-filing in the court. I've learned to use um, limiting my presence in court. I've learned to use... Uh, uh, to be able to breathe through a mask <laughs> for extended periods of time. And uh, God knows when we'll be uh, through with all this, but there are a lot of things. And I never was on Twitter or Instapundit or I'm still not on LinkedIn, but, but I have really enjoyed uh, the new... Um, social media that's open to me that it was always there but I just never was so you got you got locked up and decided to take a look right okay fair enough right Facebook yeah. Facebook I was on before and yeah and it's amazing how what people will say <laughs> on the uh, it on, is isn't it it is I, shocking. I, uh, one of the first instructions I give clients is Please do not text, email, or post on social media anything that you are not prepared to read back to the judge. And if you if you have to call me and ask me what that is, I don't really know what to tell you. Like there there should be a little voice in your head that says, "This probably isn't a good thing to post on social media, especially now that I'm a defendant or involved in a divorce or whatever." And man, yet, man those texts and those pictures. <laughs> you know when when I started sent of your private parts to <laughs> when I your started practicing, yeah. going to show up. When I started practicing law, the day I started practicing law was the day I got my first email address. Um, faxes were still on thermal paper, and um, and there was no cell phones were not really a thing. Um, texting, of course, was not a thing. Um, and you actually had to have like private investigators go out and follow people around and catch them doing stuff. Now you just get their Facebook and, and their text messages and that's it. Like you know, uh, those I, text messages can really uh, hang you. Yeah. They're, um, uh, magistrate, Especially when you're erasing yours and they're keeping that yeah, magistrate Ballinger in Nashville, who does all the who does all of the domestic violence, orders of protection stuff for one of the circuit judges down there. Every single time I've been in her court, she's had a, at least one witness get on the stand and then she'll look at him and go, give me your phone. Give me your phone and open up your messaging. And she'll sit there, she'll scroll through it and read that stuff and she's like, I get it. Yep, you know, and it could be the respondent, it could be the petitioner or whatever, but... I've seen her like literally take five, 10 minutes and I don't falter. I think that what you wrote, what you said to this other person in your life is, is compelling evidence and, and, and penetrating insight into what's why you want to take your SIM card out before you (laughs) go into the courthouse. (laughs) 
Okay, that may be one way to look at it. Um, well, um, so what's next? What are you, you just going to keep practicing law until it until you tire of it, or? Well, I'm uh, I am I, I do do cases. I don't I don't know. Uh, I was talking to a lawyer that I uh, had practiced with for a long time, and he said that he, he felt like you lost your relevance. Uh, well, you know, Don you Young retired for like 12 years, didn't he? <laughs> he kept yeah. threatening to do it. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Young was... Uh, uh, yeah. Every time I saw him coming out of the courthouse, I said, I thought you retired. He said, I am retiring. Well, he always said he didn't go to Nashville or he didn't go to Columbia, but then you'd see him in Nashville and Columbia. But <laughs> that's uh, I think I think lawyers, when they get older, have a have a right to just sort of leave it up in the air where they are. And certainly, I I am I, I the practice of law in advertising. If I, I get up because I'm an older fella, and uh, at about two or three o'clock in the morning, I'll turn the radio on to have a voice in the room and go back to sleep. And Morgan and Morgan is on the radio touting their cases, and that has been a, a really evil thread for the law practice. Oh, I'm, I know several lawyers some of whom were clients, Morgan and Morgan's move into Nashville killed their practice. Because Morgan and Morgan has apparently just come in and saturated the market with advertising and basically stomped out. They've Walmarted the mom and pop personal injury shop. That's exact. That's a great analogy. The uh, Morgan and Morgan is just, uh, they're, they're just people and they don't know everything about it. Uh, everything and their their uh, it, it's the 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 lies that and the uh, misrepresentation that are that are allowed with advertising are just um, a really significant difference in practice. Yeah, the, yeah, the the you probably didn't have a lot of. Um, Internet website presence overhead when you were practicing in 1974. <laughs> no, the the phone book ads were outrageous. Right, and I haven't bought a phone book ad in 20 years. No, nobody buys phone book ads, but they were they were kings at one time. That's right. You had to if you got the back cover. If you had a chance to buy the back cover, you better do it. Well, and it's expensive too. Oh yeah, outrageously expensive. But that uh, and it doesn't really it doesn't really uh, it's just a uh, lawyer advertising is not a good thing, and uh, I think some Justice Powell on the United States Supreme Court said it really was terrible, and that it would hurt the legal profession. And I think it has. I I tend to agree, and here's why: um, we are a profession. We are a practice. Um, there are a lot of analogies to the practice and profession and art of medicine as between art and medicine or, or medicine and law. Um, we would never in a million years accept a doctor coming out of medical school, passing one exam, throwing up a website and advertising for surgical procedures without having been mentored and watched and shepherded through an apprenticeship for years. 
And yet, if you're a lawyer, the day after you pass the bar exam, you can turn your website on and spend $10,000 a month and make your phone ring and go to court with people who don't, who don't have, who, who may not have had the wherewithal or the understanding of the difference between your beautiful website uh, and what you actually know how to do. And we would never let, we would never ever let surgeons commence the practice of medicine as a surgeon the way we let lawyers become trial lawyers. Well, and, and I know that insurance companies have abused their positions and their power and their abilities and, and it's, and that some of this is these trial lawyers, uh, I, are abusive, but to have it, to have one firm or to have a lawyer on with a website or a TV spot that is uh, that really gives the wrong impression is just not good. Just yeah. like it's not good to have uh, one of the worst things I think we had was interstate banking, where we had a wonderful group of local banks where people knew everybody. And then they were all just uh, eaten up, and and uh, there's what there's swallowed. eight there's like six or eight banks now. I mean, realistically, yes. there's more, but I mean, like yes. there used to be six or eight in the county, right? And there's not now. There's just branches of national, right, banks that don't make decisions locally, and, right? And when you get law firms or or uh, insurance companies or brokerage doing houses, the same thing. Or realty companies, whatever. If, if, if bigger is not always better, and it le- can lead to um, some real abuses. Well, Joe, I appreciate you doing this. Anything you want to add? How do we find you? How does somebody that wants to hire you find you? Well, I have a website, uh, ballaw.com. B a u g h law.com. Yeah. Okay. B a u g h. You're old school. They still need to call you. Yeah, they can call. <laughs> they can call me, or they can. Uh, my email address is Joe at ballaw dot com. All right, and uh, you can call the office, or you can just come to the courthouse and say, "Where's Joe Ball's office?" <laughs> right, you are on the square right here in right, Franklin. I've been there a long square. time. I have, and uh, mm-hmm. you're easy to find. So um, you're doing, you, you're doing criminal defense and what, what I write all? a lot of wills. Right, okay. I do okay. probate work. Okay. Uh, I do I occasionally personal injury. Uh, so I do domestic uh, stuff. Wide, I don't do domestic. Okay. I, so anything that happens at our courthouse, that goes long. Yeah, you're right about that. So pretty much anything that happens at our courthouse here, except the domestic stuff. Right. All right, Joe Ball, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks, thanks for coming. My thanks to Joe Ball for sitting down with me. Um, I'm going to tease the next episode a little bit. Um, after I recorded this interview with Joe Ball, I went and recorded an interview with Tony Turnbow. If you are a history buff, you will not want to miss the next episode. Um, Joe alluded to it just as, just briefly in this episode, uh, the Meriwether Lewis issue that he was involved in. Uh, I dig into that with Tony Turnbow a lot in the next episode. And if you are a history buff or know a history buff, especially if you have any interest whatsoever in the Natchez Trace, uh, Meriwether Lewis, or Andrew Jackson, you will not want to miss the next episode. So um, this is Dana McClendon. 
this has been Ready for Trial. If you like what I'm doing, click all the subscribes and likes and everything. And if you want to be a guest or know someone who should be a guest, hit me up. I'm easy to find. Until next time, thank you for listening.